Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair. Tonight on Ideas, we continue our repeat series on public broadcasting in Canada, originally broadcast last fall. Lauren, would you give us a level, please? One, two, three, four. This is the CBC. Okay? Here's more coffee, Mr. Green. Okay, kid, out of the studio. Just one minute to go. This is the National News Bulletin, a summary of the day's news. The largest Canadian convoy of the war has reached Britain. Another German city has been blasted by the RAF. I remember RAF one time I was out in Saskatchewan, a little town, of a great and out of a store I heard Lauren Green's big booming voice the largest convoy the war. Ever out across the And I thought, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm still at home, I'm still in the country. A long way from Toronto, where I was living then. But here was Lauren Green telling us what was happening in the world. Hey, friends, if you want to smile, don't turn that dial. By short way, by long way, and by Tony Home Permanent Wave, it's the Wayne and Schuster Show. The CBC was the theater. It was the opera house. It was the music hall. And this is what I think the CBC did in those days, was to hold an image up to the country in a whole variety of ways. And people said, yes, this is here, this is where we are, this is what we are. A lot of the people in the CBC, the program people, had a sense of mission about what they were doing in terms of the life of the country. When war broke out in Europe in 1939, the CBC was only three years old and its knees still wobbled a little when it walked. By the war's end, it was a far more mature organization, confident of its abilities and more sure of its place in Canadian life. And in the years that followed, it seized the intellectual leadership of the country. It became our common cultural coin, our national theater, our concert hall, our classroom, our town meeting. It became a kind of mecca back in the early, uh, or the late 40s and the early 50s for people from all over the country that, you know, it was the place you went if you wanted to sell a story, if you wanted to get a job, a creative job, if you wanted to be a producer, if you wanted to write music, it, you know, it was a better bet to try and get a piece of music commissioned at CBC than any place else in the country almost. And uh, so it attracted that whole group of people. Tonight's program is about this creative period in the life of the CBC, from the beginning of the war to the beginning of television. David Cayley has written and prepared tonight's program. CBC sound equipment was at the dockside as the troops prepared to embark. We hear the last roll call on Canadian soil. You may catch a name you know. The Second World War was in many ways the making of CBC Radio. After the struggles of the late 30s to establish stations, a basic program service, and the idea of public service broadcasting, the war suddenly gave the CBC a ready-made role. People still remember how they hung on every word of Lorne Green's nightly 10 o'clock newscasts. War united people and the CBC became an expression of English Canada's united concern with the war. Production increased as new shows were created in aid of the war effort. And it was in these new shows that our own Lister Sinclair began his career as an actor. A man called Jules Upton and myself were the only people around who seemed to be capable of doing a reliable German accent. 
Which must have been in demand. It was very much in demand, and we were referred to always as the Achtung brothers, <laughs> because you usually needed two Germans, you know, to talk to each other. And, uh, you know, all they were all wartime pieces, and so we were shouting Achtung a lot. There was a... Each of the armed forces had its own regular radio show. Uh, Alpha Lanky was the Air Force show. And Neil Leroy, who had a rather dry, sardonic, prairie voice. Leroy was the voice of the Lancaster bomber. He was the bomber itself, Alpha Lanky. And we had all manner of... Every uh, program, which was about a, an adventure, would end with a five-minute item from somebody who was a genuine war hero. And I remember being on the show with Gibson, the guy who bombed the dams, and Gibson throwing up in the washroom because he was too scared to go on the air. The Navy show was Fighting Navy. Fighting Navy is on the air. This is Chapter 23 in Book 2 of Fighting Navy, the story of Sub-Lieutenant Jack Marlowe, RCNVR, and his shipmates of the Canadian destroyer Missanabe. Fighting Navy was run by Bill Strange, who later became a captain, Austin Willis. And uh, uh, Bill was Navy-struck. He was very, very serious and humorless about the Navy. He ran the whole operation in the correct way, uh, in the strictly correct way. And uh, when Bill wanted a, a cab to go back to his hotel, Austin had to say, with a straight face, with a straight face, mind you, duty boat alongside, sir, meaning a diamond taxi has arrived. <laughs> right. Well, that was the context of fighting Navy. And it was the, the adventures of a Canadian destroyer or frigate or something of that Correct. kind. Thank I say of something of that kind because I was the commander of the German submarine <laughs> that they were pursuing all the time. So I didn't have, I didn't, wasn't too clear about what the enemy was up to. But what I was doing was saying Achtung a lot of times. Strange, actually, was a very good documentary writer. And he did a perfectly extraordinary documentary, an hour documentary about a, a convoy crossing the Atlantic. He went on a convoy to find out what it was like. And somebody had broken all the phonograph records, which were 78s in those days. And there was only one record on the convoy in this wardroom, which was Yes, My Darling Daughter. And he used it in his documentary. And to this day, I mean, that conjures up to me the image of crossing the North Atlantic in a convoy, which I never was on, you know, but thanks to Bill Strange. It's there, it's in the feeling. He was very good at that stuff. Propaganda was a big part of the CBC's job during the war. It might have been propaganda in a good cause, but it was still propaganda. Early in the war, there had been fears within the corporation that becoming an arm of government during wartime would be fatal to the CBC's independence. The issue led to a falling out between the general manager, Gladstone Murray, and Alan Plant, who had led the movement to create the CBC in 1936 and was now a prominent member of the Board of Governors. Plant favored the continued independence of the CBC. Murray aligned himself more closely with the government and the minister responsible for the CBC, C.D. Howe. The board initially sided with Murray and Howe, and in 1940, Plant resigned in protest. Two years later, he was vindicated. Led by a number of his old allies, the House of Commons Broadcasting Committee chastised Murray and reaffirmed the independence of the CBC. Heartened, 
the CBC began to reassert its right to present critical opinion, and this led to a series of well-publicized battles with the government. The first to become public was in the summer of 1943. The issue was a series of discussion programs being planned by the talks department. They were to be called Citizens Forum. Morley Callahan had been hired as moderator. Ernie Bushnell was the program director. The supervisor of talks at the time, Neil Morrison, recalls how the row began. Bushnell said to me, look, you and Morley had better go up to Ottawa and see if you can line up some people, cabinet ministers and parliamentarians and others, for the series. We had a uh, list of topics. So Morley and I got on the train and <laughs> came up to Ottawa and got a room in this hotel in the shadow. And we started out and we decided as proper in terms of protocol to start with the government. We tried to start with Brooke Claxton, who was then parliamentary secretary to Mackenzie King. I knew him personally, and he was busy, couldn't see us until the afternoon. So instead of wasting the whole day, we said, all right, let's go and see the conservatives. So we called, uh, I think it was Ross Brown, the conservative office, or we went to see Gordon Graydon, and we got an appointment with M.J. Coldwell and with David Lewis, and uh, and we talked to them, and tentatively, uh, we lined up some names. And in the afternoon, we got in. Claxton, who had an office in the East Block, uh, we came in, we explained what it was all about and what we wanted. And then we showed him, or Morley, I guess, showed him a list. And it had, you know, Coldwell and others on it. Uh, Claxton just hit the ceiling, hit the roof. And this was an insult. And uh, they hadn't done anything. We'd come to them last. And... Uh, Morley, uh, the thing went from bad to worse. Morley got annoyed and lost, lost his temper. And he, he got up and went over to the desk in his belligerent, pugilistic style and leaned over and said, Mr. Claxton, maybe you can tell Morrison what to do. He works for the CBC, but I'm a taxpayer and you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> so, and I was saying to Morley, Morley, take it easy, Morley, take it easy. <laughs> And the Claxton got mad. He was mad already, so the fat was in the fire. And we didn't uh, succeed in convincing him of our uh, good intentions or integrity. Morrison finds the story funny in retrospect, but at the time it was an important turning point in the life of the CBC. Claxton wasn't just unhappy to have been consulted last. He was unhappy about CCFU's being aired on the CBC period, and he followed through by getting in touch with General Lafleche, the Minister of National Defense, the department now responsible for the CBC. Lafleche, in turn, put pressure on the corporation's acting general manager, Dr. Augustin Frigon, formerly of the Aird Commission, and planning for the program stalled. Then the Winnipeg Free Press, not by accident, learned of the affair. Other newspapers picked it up. Dr. Frigon denied that there had ever been political interference and the series went ahead. The next year, General Lafleche tried again. This time, the issue was a Montreal reporter's criticism of the management of New Brunswick mental hospitals. Ken Johnson, who was working for the Standard then, was doing a broadcast for us, and uh, which was very critical about the uh, liberal administration in New Brunswick, and the premier, I think it was, called <clears throat> Lafleche, and Lafleche called the 
studio in Montreal. I got through to the control room and uh, told them to cancel a broadcast, which, of course, was a flagrant uh, interference. She had uh, no right at all to do. That got out in the newspapers, and for the second time, La Flèche was castigated in the press. It wasn't by accident it got out, although it would have been hard to prevent it, because, after all, Ken Johnson was a reporter, and I wasn't going to let anything of that sort pass either. So uh, La Flèche didn't survive very long, and that was one of the last times uh, cabinet ministers made attempt because it was politically, you, you got your fingers burned. Another wartime incident involved the Minister of Justice, Louis Saint-Laurent. After a disturbance at the Stony Mountain Penitentiary in Manitoba, he asked that the CBC no longer cover such occurrences. The acting general manager, Dr. Frigon, was happy to comply, though the policy was never applied. It was changed in 1946 when Davidson Dunton became chairman of the CBC Board of Governors. I came into the uh, chairmanship and I must say firmly, firmly committed to the independence of the CBC and would also be visible and found that the uh, management had agreed to a request from the then Minister of Justice that uh, news of prison riots not be broadcast on the CBC. This is because in other penitentiaries, the CBC was the only radio they were allowed to listen to and it was thought that if they heard of uh, violence in one prison, that would tend to... Uh, incite or lead to violence. And then, in fact, that, that request was being met. I found this out and brought it up at the board and we just uh, stopped the practice right away and so advised the Minister of Justice. That's, that was it. Dunton remained chairman for the next 12 years and from time to time he still had to fend off political interference. On one occasion, the Prime Minister himself wrote to complain about a certain commentator and asked that he be taken off the air. The letter, by pure chance, says Dunton, found its way into the hands of the press, and Mr. Salaron had a rather uncomfortable afternoon in the House. In another case, an attempt was made to cancel a documentary on unemployment in Cape Breton. C.D. Howe was acting prime minister and called me and said, I hear you're doing this thing on unemployment. It's not to go on. I said, Mr. Howard, it's the Board of Governors that finally decide things. And he said, uh, okay, you better resign. Uh, well, that was the end of it. But to his credit, he called me back the next day and said, uh, you know, I'm sorry, that was the wrong thing to do. And we ran the program. But I think that was a good reminder when C.D. Howe backs off. <laughs> what is now called the arm's-length relationship was built on years of determined resistance to political interference. Men like Alan Plant and Davidson Dunton deserve a lot of the credit. But equally important was the fact that during the war, the CBC began actively building its independence by linking up with other organizations and putting down strong roots in the country. The process began with the inauguration of farm broadcasting in 1939. The man responsible was Orville Shug. Shug was a farmer at Watford, Ontario, and a friend of Alan Plant's. They had been involved together in a rural youth crusade called the New Canada Movement in the early 30s. Their friendship encouraged Shug to think about what public broadcasting could do for farmers, and when the CBC was set up in 1936, he communicated his ideas to the general manager, Gladstone Murray. The upshot was that I was called to Ottawa for an interview with Murray on the 4th of November, 19. 
36. And what he said was that he liked my philosophy. Could I come in the first of the year, would be uh, 37, and uh, start to put it in operation? I said, sure. I wouldn't pass up an opportunity like this. Well, he said, you go home. I have to make a trip across Canada, and uh, you'll hear from me the first of the year with whatever we're going to do about whatever we're going to do. So <clears throat> I went home, cleaned up my business, which was not very extensive, and I uh, maintained a stance of watchful waiting. Orville Shug remained in that stance for nearly two years. Murray never called. But late in 1938, Shug got a wire from Ernie Bushnell, the supervisor of programs, expressing revived interest. Next year, the first farm broadcast went on the air. One of the distinctive features of these half-hour programs, the precursors of today's Radio Noon, was the use of dramatic serials. They were modeled on the soaps, and they provided virtually the first steady work Canadian actors ever had. The stories revolved around fictional farm families in each region of Canada. Ontario had the Craigs. Today, we find Thomas, Bill, and Eric out stooking wheat. It's about the middle of the afternoon, and right at the moment, Thomas and Bill are working together. So let's join them and see how they're getting along. Well, I don't think two working together like this can make as good time as working alone will. No, except when the grain's pretty rough or when there's a heck of a wind. Then they can jam the sheaves in and together and it doesn't fall over. Put it as blunt as terms, the dramatic sketch was used well, as I'll a never forget one medium for propaganda. Propaganda in the best sense of the word. Propaganda for better farming practices, better farm life, better country life, better public participation and more public participation of, of farmers and farm families in the affairs of their community, all that sort of thing. The farm broadcasts had a huge impact, says Orville Shuck, an impact which is hard to recapture today. To get a proper view of what the situation was then, realize that of the Canadian population in 1936, 46% were rural. That's hard for people today to conceive of. Also, it's difficult to grasp the isolation that existed in Canada between first regions and even between rural communities. And that's why radio was so important when it burst on the scene with a, with a service specifically designed for farm people. I was absolutely amazed at what happened in the Maritimes, for instance, uh, where the isolation was even greater than it was in the outback of Ontario, if I may call it that. And one of the first things that happened down in the Maritimes, uh, where the farmers had been at the mercy of itinerant drovers buying the livestock, the itinerant drover who was really preying on the on the farmer because they had the market prices, the farmer didn't. As soon as we came on the air with daily market prices, the itinerant drover could no longer drive into a farmer's yard and say, I'll give you such and such for such and such at such and such a price. The farmers say, oh no, you know, I just heard on the CBC air that uh, the price should be such and such. 
we, in fact, we, the CBC Farm Broadcast, put the itinerant drovers off the roads in the Maritimes during the first year of operation. And, of course, we were heartily blessed for that by the farm people of the, of the region. This is National Farm Forum, and the theme of the program this winter is Farmers in the People's War. The next step in the CBC's outreach to farmers was Farm Radio Forum. It was set up in cooperation with the Canadian Association for Adult Education and went on the air early in the war. The basic idea was people listening in groups. The groups themselves chose the topics at an annual meeting, and each week a pamphlet was distributed before the broadcast. Alan Thomas was involved with Farm Forum for many years. The nostalgic model is the farm kitchen uh, with anywhere up to 12 people gathered around the table. Normally they were discussions of four or five people around the particular subject and CBC knocked itself dead to get ranges of opinion. And uh, then when the broadcast was over, the group in the, f in the farm kitchen would, would, I mean this is the theory and mostly it worked, they would argue about it. And then they would draw some conclusions about the nature of the issue. And those conclusions would be forwarded to the provincial headquarters and then to the national. And then every fourth week, a summary of what people had said would be broadcast so that people knew that somebody had bothered to listen, to pay attention to what they were saying. And that's a very powerful reinforcement. Now for the findings of Ontario Forums last week. In reply to a question on what we as farm people are defending ourselves against in the present war, over 75% of the reports said that we are defending ourselves against fascism and all forms of dictatorship. About 25% expressed nearly as much concern that we defend ourselves against a repetition of the depressed 30s. Many said that government must represent the people and must reduce privilege for the few. Great changes were seen as necessary in Canada to assure the just and democratic order for which we are fighting. Forums called for There were so prices, many spin-offs from, from Farm Forum that it would be impossible to count them all. But I'll tell you, there were hundreds of arenas, uh, hundreds of community facilities emerged out of the fact that those groups got together and having played the part in Farm Forum, then said, gee whiz, maybe we could do some things in our own community. And there were just enormous spin-offs from, from those things. In terms of Citizens Forum, uh, the one event I do know for sure is that the first public housing unit, the first public housing association, came out of a Citizens Forum group in the city of Toronto. And so, you know, it's, they're very hard to evaluate because if you stick straight to the, the sort of basic elements of it, then you miss all the important things that happened because they just multiplied in terms of the, of the action that they gave rise to. Citizens Forum, a national program for the discussion of important issues that face us and our world. Tonight in Kingston, Citizens Forum will discuss the question, is Canada becoming an American satellite? The program comes from a public meeting in the Memorial Hall under the sponsorship of the Kingston branch of the Canadian Institute of International Affairs. Here to preside over the discussion and to introduce the speakers 
is Frank W. Pierce of the CBC Department of Talks and Public Affairs. Mr. Pierce. Thank you, Mr. Pauley, and good evening, everyone. We are happy tonight to be broadcasting... I would say that our chief thrust was to establish and maintain connections with various segments of Canadian society. And the chief change in the program at the time I came on to the Citizens Forum was to link up more directly with, with uh, people by organizing public meetings from which broadcasts would originate and so on, as well as having a kind of two-way flow of information and opinion. But we collected opinions that were expressed by organized groups but we also took our broadcasts out to public meetings. And we did that in, in um, many other kinds of programs, such as um, programs with business and labor groups, programs in the field of human relations, women's interests uh, programs, and so on, where we had very close ties with a whole uh, range of organizations, uh, the Canadian Association for Adult Education, or in farm broadcasts with the farm organizations and cooperatives, I could go on with a considerable length right. about the amount of time we spent, the amount of effort we put forward to establish and maintain relations with active organizations that were otherwise not concerned with broadcasting, but which we thought should have a part. Another group to which the CBC was reaching out was women. Women's interests, as they were called, were the department of Elizabeth Long, a legendary figure recalled here by colleague Marjorie McEnany. She was one of the very early uh, employees. Uh, she uh, was a columnist on the Winnipeg Free Press. Uh, she um, was a very brilliant woman. I understand she had one of the highest IQs if ever went through the University of Manitoba. And uh, she was put in charge of women's talks. And, of course, there were no women's talks. And it just went on from there. She had her own little empire. I was very friendly with her, um, and I got a lot of ideas from her. I never dared to give her one, but uh, she just ran her empire, and anybody that intruded in, an, in it, uh, <laughs> she did battle and did it nobly, but she built up a wonderful coterie of, uh, of women broadcasters, and she gave them support, and she gave them, you see, on the very touchy issue uh, of uh, consumer information. This is not nothing what women are telling women about what to buy and what is dangerous and uh, what to avoid and, and so on. This is not nothing. And uh, Elizabeth was just there to defend her girls. I don't think she ever got sued because she insisted on them being accurate and correct. But she always backed them up. And she did, I think, get bring along uh, some very uh, fine broadcasters. Elizabeth Long and myself, who worked very closely with her. This is Helen James from an interview in the Public Archives of Canada. Had this dream of having a sizable chunk of time on the air to give people at home, women in, mainly because they are the ones who are mainly at home, but men too, some interesting, uh, amusing, entertaining, informative material uh, during the daytime hours. Most of the men uh, to whom we talked, that is the men over us, listened 
but uh, didn't pay too much attention to to our pleas and to our arguments. But Ira Dilworth was a different kettle of fish. And when the soap operas, the radio soap operas began to disappear, when television arrived in Canada in 1952, it was Ira Dilworth who made the time available for Elizabeth Long and myself to do what we had wanted to do for so long. The program they created was called Trans-Canada Matinee, CBC Radio's first daily magazine show. It was Helen Carscallon's first job at the CBC. I know it's a cliché, but I think that Elizabeth and Helen James both felt that uh, women's window on the world should be enlarged with a recognition that in Canada there were a lot of women in, who were quite isolated. Isolated in their communities and isolated in that their education had fitted them for much more challenging thought than they were being, than they were participating in. This is Bill Bessie saying good afternoon for Trans-Canada Matinee. And we promise not to mention hearts and flowers on this February 14th program even once. Today's show does seem to be full of all kinds of information, though, for people interested in low-cost housing, and who isn't these days, for parents of toddlers and teenagers... The woman on the farm, the woman um, in the small town who was, um, saw her kids off to school and her husband off to work, and then what did she have? She had this radio program that she listened to for an hour every day. And that made me feel very, very responsible that uh, we brought her some real meat. I struck up a friendship with a woman from the Magdalen Islands, a British war bride, who said that she couldn't live without this program. She was an English-speaking woman, married a French-speaking fisherman from the Magdalen Islands, and went to live with her in-laws, had to speak French learned to speak French, and felt very isolated, of course, in that community, no libraries. But she listened to this program, and this was her link with the world. And this, I'm sure, was true in many communities across Canada. This program brought the world in. This concern for women in isolated communities was one aspect of a more general social concern which permeated the CBC. Its roots were in the war years, according to Harry Boyle, who joined the farm department in 1942. There was a very strong degree of, of social consciousness on the part of the people that I met, that from the talks in public affairs to the farm department. The way I describe it is that there was a kind of consciousness in, in all of the people involved in these that something had been wrong with the cycle in the country, that people had suffered too much in the Depression that we mustn't forget about it during wartime, and that we must be sure in the post-war situation that we don't go back to the bad old thing. And you heard that expressed. It was there. There was an enthusiasm for the whole concept of broadcasting. Quite a lot of these people had come, like myself, from a private station, and you got, you, you got picked up in it. Part of that was the fact that also most of us had experienced the Depression and had been through it, and, and it was contagious to this kind of feeling of what you could do. This optimism and social concern were part of everything the CBC did in those years, 
drama, as well as talks in public affairs. Plays produced for Andrew Allen's stage series were often preoccupied with social problems. Dramatic writers like Lister Sinclair and Len Peterson tried for a kind of documentary realism. And sometimes the talks and drama departments actually joined forces to produce educational dramas. In Search of Ourselves. In Search of Ourselves was a series of drama documentaries which ran for 10 years under the supervision of Marjorie McEnany. This is the fourth in a series of programs on human relations based on actual case histories and presented in dramatized form by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in cooperation with the Canadian Mental Health Association. The commentary tonight is by Sidney Katz, a social worker, a writer and broadcaster in the field of social questions. The topic of tonight's broadcast may not be one which affects you or your family directly, but it is one in which we all feel some concern, and in a sense, for which we have some responsibility. The CBC and the Canadian Mental Health Association are presenting this educational broadcast about the problem of unmarried mothers in the hope that it will stimulate serious thoughts and discussions. Today's broadcast is entitled, The Unmarried Girl Becomes a Mother. They were outrageously daring in the matter of, of uh, human problems and, and so on. And we never solved them. We always left them open-ended. And then we had a commentator, a psychiatrist, or a social scientist of some variety uh, to point out things that people needed to think about and either write in or, or join in the group discussions. And we were way, way out in the matter of handling uh, problems sexual problems and social problems and so on. Uh, but, of course, as I look at it now, we weren't way out at all. We were so conservative, it's unbelievable. But at that time, people certainly thought we were. What role did you feel you were playing in the country uh, at that time at CBC Radio? I took myself pretty seriously. <laughs> I didn't look as though I was, but I did. I really thought, thought that uh, we did have a very important role in public education with the sugarcoating of entertainment. You know, we, we always had something back in behind that we thought was important. And the more you could sugarcoat the pill, the better, but the pill had to be there. Through programs like In Search of Ourselves, the CBC enlarged the boundaries of public discussion, and usually there was resistance. Take Lester Sinclair's play, Hilda Morgan. Originally written for radio, you can hear it again next week on Morningside, it was adapted for TV in 1952. The play touched, very circumspectly, on the subject of abortion. Opposition leader George Drew told the House of Commons it was a disgraceful play and hoped that the government of Canada would take action to prevent filth of that kind going out over the televisions of this country. The CBC had a liberalizing influence on Canadian public opinion in the 1950s, and it was often attacked in the House of Commons and the press for its godless, free-thinking ways. But discussion was still always guarded by strict codes of fairness and balance. All opinions must be heard, and none must be thought to be the opinion of the CBC itself. Bernard Trotter joined the talks department in the early 1950s. 
I wasn't an ideologue of any kind, but I I did very much uh, believe in a national press in Canada. You know, we had to connect with each other and we had to share experiences and ideas and talk to each other in various parts of the country. And the CBC seemed to me to be the very good medium for this. Did you see yourself at that time as, as shaping, as leading public opinion in a sense? No, I didn't. Uh, now, that's not to say that other people may, may not have, but I didn't. I thought that the, uh, the CBC was a, uh, a pipeline, a communication system. Uh, I didn't have any notion of trying to shape what people thought in any direct sense. I, I thought that, it, that our role was to make sure that the important subjects were explored and discussed and that uh, all valid, uh, well valid's a loaded word, that all points of view were given uh, a chance to compete with each other uh, in, a, in a free forum. I suppose in a sense the uh, Athenian agora was the, the kind of theoretical model. Perhaps I was too uh, naive about this, but I really did think of myself as a neutral or, or a neuter <laughs> as far as uh, imposing any of my own ideas on the country. I, that wasn't the way I saw my role at all. Who's there? It's the happy gang. Well, come on in. Here we are, the happy gang here. Here we are, how do you do? Here we are, to chase away your troubles with a song, a melody or two. Brush your teeth with Colgate paint or powder. Then you start each morning with a bang. Watch you join us when we sing and shout out. We're the Colgate Happy Gang. Yes, it's the happy gang from Toronto with Kathleen Stokes. Public affairs, of course, was only part of what went on CBC Radio's two networks, the Dominion and the Trans-Canada. Radio was still primarily an entertainment medium, and the CBC carried many commercially sponsored programs, both American and Canadian. The Carnation Contented Hour, presented every Monday for more than nine years for irradiated Carnation milk, the evaporated milk that is used by more people in the United States in Canada and throughout the world than any other brand. Here on a continent whose peoples are dedicated to freedom, freedom of thought, of speech, of worship, there's freedom of music too. Music helps unite us all in freedom and contentment. And that is the mood of music brought to you now by the Carnation Orchestra and Chorus, Soloists and Lullaby Lady, all under the direction of our gifted composer-conductor, Percy Faith. The CBC depended on commercial programs for revenue, and for this reason, they tended to dominate the evening schedules. This limited the CBC's ability to present more serious, more ambitious works. And so, CBC Wednesday Night was created, under the supervision of Harry Boyle. Once we established on CBC Wednesday Night a night without commercials, we could then have that wonderful sense of being able to program for two and a half, three hours without interruptions. Whereas on the regular schedule, you always had this constant business of 
Lux Radio Theater would be on 9 to 10 Monday night so that you were programmed up to it. Or something would be on Tuesday night, John and Judy from 8 to 8.30, so you had to program around it. So a commercial freeze, CBC Wednesday night, gave us the opportunity to do that kind of, of thing uh, and do it well. We, had, we, we premiered uh, Benjamin Britten's Peter Grimes, North America, on CBC Wednesday night. Did T.S. Eliot murder in the cathedral? I think CBC Wednesday night was a was a real accomplishment because I had a constantly a kind of reward in people saying, "Well, I remember CBC Wednesday night." You know, my dad or my mother would say, "Now let's hear what's on," and Bannerman would come on and announce what it was, and Bannerman would often, quite often, because he, he because I urged him to do that, would state his own opinion, I, and he would say, "I don't particularly like so and so, but you may enjoy," and. Uh, they, and, and, and people have told me that they sort of, you know, I remember one fellow telling me, brought up on Grand Manan, and he said CBC Wednesday night was the was the, the thing for them. There's a tremendous hunger. I know all kinds of people for all kinds of things, and because somebody lives in a remote area, it doesn't mean that they don't want and feel and want chamber music, and the exposure is also the thing that counts. I've had countless cases of people telling me that the CBC annoyed them with the symphony on Friday, Pops concert on Friday night, or, or a, a recital program, or so and so, and then gradually found themselves listening and involved. And, you know, I've heard many people say, if it hadn't been for that, I never would have been involved in it. Wednesday night became the centerpiece of the CBC's service to what were called discriminating listeners. The CBC believed that it was its duty not just to serve popular taste, but to challenge and educate it. There was a determination or a, a concern about uh, intellectual and uh, cultural standards or quality. Neil Morrison was supervisor of talks and public affairs from the war until the early 50s. Uh, one of the things when I took on the job I was determined to do was to to raise a level of, of criticism or reviewing, if you want to call it a more ordinary term. And I was looking around for somebody to do drama reviewing or criticism, and Maver Moore suggested Nathan Cohn. And uh, Nathan took off from there. <laughs> Nathan wasn't at all sure he should keep on broadcasting because he thought it was going to ruin his writing style. Well, Nathan had a very... Uh, heavy, involved, elaborate writing style, which I didn't think was all that great. And I said, Nathan, if you keep on, you're going to improve your writing style. But I eventually ended up on the stars. So whether his style improved or not, I don't know. But we also had uh, Clyde Gilmore. And he did very uh, trenchant reviews about films. And the Film Distributors uh, Association in Canada threatened to sue the corporation because we were harming their business. Well, my reply again was, let them sue, that's great. You know, uh, like banning a book in Boston. Book reviewing was the same. They had been, had been, and in the newspapers, it was fairly, um, well, puffery to a large extent, and especially in relation to Canadian things. You know, the way to encourage Canadian literature was to, was to pat it on the back and say, you're nice people and keep on trying, whereas some of us didn't feel this was good enough. Whether it was criticism of Canadian literature or hockey, the CBC was building a sense of Canada as a distinct national society. 
The Canadian nationalism which had animated Graham Spry, Alan Plant, and the Radio League as early as the 1920s came into full flower at the CBC in the 1940s and 50s. A network broadcasting, says Neil Morrison, had an unusually important role in fostering it. Because of the Canadian condition, space, limited population, and you didn't have really any established centers. You had Montreal, which is largely French-speaking, but not entirely, uh, Toronto and Vancouver, Winnipeg, Halifax, smaller centers. And there was no national newspaper. The Globe and Mail now publishes a national edition. There was nothing comparable to the New York Times. There really weren't. There were a couple of magazines, such as Saturday Night, for instance, or the Canadian Forum. Uh, but the Canadian artistic, creative, intellectual, opinion-leading community was dispersed and scattered. Uh, this was not the case in England, where London was the big centre, plus Oxford and Cambridge nearby. Uh, France, Paris, and that's where everybody gravitated. Now, there was a certain movement of people towards Toronto, but uh, in the period I'm talking about, i.e. the war period uh, before and uh, immediately after, there wasn't the kind of concentration, perhaps there is now, and we didn't have the same uh, means of communication. So that the CBC became, almost inadvertently, and perhaps without the uh, awareness or deliberate intent of people involved, the focus for uh, the uh, not only the artistic and intellectual and cultural life of the country, but also for other aspects, uh, sports life or uh, political life, uh, because it was the, the medium of communication from one end of the country to the other. And therefore, network radio network broadcasting played a much more important uh, role in Canada, in my view, than it did in the United States or in France or in England. In the 1950s, the Talks and Public Affairs Department of the CBC, as it was then called, I'm speaking of only radio at this point, seemed to me to be very close to the intellectual center of Canadian life. This is Robert Fulford, a broadcaster and critic in and around the CBC for more than 30 years. For example, George Grant, who was then a, a young professor, I think, at Dalhousie, uh, first came into my consciousness uh, in the mid-50s when I sat down and I heard a half-hour lecture he gave on the CBC on Jean-Paul Sartre. And then I dug out other lectures of his notes until from then on, and I've followed him ever since. But at no time uh, did I think it even slightly remarkable that I was listening to a, a young philosopher from Halifax explained Sartre to me on the radio in a half-hour lecture. Uh, that seemed exactly what the CBC wanted to do and was meant to do. And then on, on, um, on uh, Sunday afternoon, for example, at 4.30 on Sunday afternoon, on Critically Speaking, you would hear three critics, one or two of them first class, who would address the new books the new films, uh, the new music in Canada, music being written in Canada, the new uh, broadcasting programs, television and radio programs. So that it seemed natural if there was, if a critic of some interest was emerging somewhere in Canada, I remember, for example, Chester Duncan from Winnipeg, 
who I thought then and think now was one of the most interesting commentators around. Chester Duncan was regularly on CBC Radio. That was my only exposure to him for 10 or 15 years. I only knew him as a voice from Winnipeg. So I can't say that the most important thoughts of Canada were conceived in the CBC. But the CBC seemed to be the place where the Canadian thinkers, academic and otherwise, were expressing themselves to a large public, or a fairly large public. Mr. Chairman, Your Excellency, and friends of television in Montreal. There are many television sets in Canada, something like 110,000 at the present time. These have been receiving programs from the United States. But this evening, Canada starts on her own. Television is a remarkable new form of... On September the 6th, 1952, Canadian television went on the air. Dr. J.J. McCann, the minister responsible for the CBC, officially opened the station in Montreal. Toronto began broadcasting the following night. Perhaps the effect of television on radio is an example of what Northrop Fry calls foreshortening, promising developments cut short, something Fry says is a hallmark of Canadian history. But it didn't happen all at once. TV eventually eclipsed radio, but in the meantime, they had to coexist, rather painfully, according to Robert Fulford. When you look at the history of the CBC in the 1950s, and you see the collision between television and radio, I think you understand a good deal of, of what has happened to mass culture in our time or to the distribution of ideas in our time. I think you begin to get closer to it. The more you examine that collision, the meeting place of all these adult educators and uh, perhaps uh, at least upper middle brows who staffed the CBC radio service, and these new people in television. This collision of these two forces was really uh, traumatic for all concerned. On the one hand, the radio people felt invaded, and I can remember a button being worn around the CBC in the early 1950s saying, help stamp out TV. And for the television people who were conquering this brave new world and who knew that television is not a medium like the others, it has its own logic, its own rules, its own beauty. For these television people to be governed by these old men of 40, 45, these old men who, who knew nothing but radio and adult education, in any case were veterans of the Second World War, uh, and looked back on uh, shaping radio experience, for these old men to be telling them, the brave new television producers, how television should be done or what should be allowed on it, this was terrible. It was the beginning of the view that the CBC, in terms of its audience and, and its relation to the audience, is reactionary. That it doesn't keep up with the latest thing, that it's hopelessly stodgy. So that was, that was the collision that was going on there. On the one hand, the old adult educators the informers, and the idealists, if you like. On the other hand, the busy opportunists who wanted big-time careers in 
television and wanted to graduate from Toronto or Vancouver or perhaps Montreal to New York or Los Angeles or London, and in many cases did so. The collision between these two forces was, was traumatic for all of them. It's often been said since that the CBC never really recovered from television, that TV, with its high costs, its technical demands, and its seductive promise of power and glory, simply overwhelmed CBC Radio's carefully constructed philosophy of public service. Well, I wasn't there, but my guess is that there's some truth to this argument, and perhaps a touch of nostalgia as well. But what is certainly true is that in the years during and after World War II, CBC Radio set the terms for public broadcasting in Canada. It won a mass audience, it created the country's first national forum of art and ideas, and in the process, it helped to invent contemporary Canada. Tonight on Ideas, Turning Points in Public Broadcasting, the second of five repeat programs written and presented by David Cayley. Technical Operations, Lauren Tulk. Production Assistants, Gail Brownell and Laurie Clayton. Producer, Bernie Locht. Archival Research, Ken Pewley. You can get a printed transcript of these five programs. It costs $5 for the whole series. Just send a check or money order to CBC Enterprises, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. Please be prepared to wait six to eight weeks for delivery. Tomorrow night, we continue our series on broadcasting with a look at the early years of television, years of both triumph and tribulation. I hope you'll join me. For ideas, I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs>